Welcome to the Data Pulse. I'm your host, Anika. In this podcast, I dive into the growing role that data science plays in the latest biomedical innovations. Join me as I go behind the scenes and check the pulse with domain experts and rising stars who are leading advances in data-driven human health. I'm here today with Dr. Corey McCann, the founder, president, and CEO of Pear Therapeutics. Pear is a pioneer in prescription digital therapeutics as the first company to receive market authorization for software to treat disease. Thanks for joining me here today, Corey. I'm curious to learn more about your work in this field of prescription digital therapeutics. Previously, you were an investor with MPM Capital, where you evaluated new healthcare investment opportunities. Prior to that, your training through your MD-PhD uniquely combined medicine and science of the brain. What's motivated you to start your own company? And then how did you become interested in digital therapeutics, specifically for neurological diseases? Anika, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. I guess as, as I think about really what motivates me across most of the things that I do in my life, it is really looking at the opportunity to have impact. And uh, in particular, um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about different uh, disease conditions associated with the brain and really stepping back and thinking about how one would impact the treatment of these particular patients. And uh, I think if you take a look at the pharmaceutical pipeline uh, for the treatment of different psychiatric and neurologic conditions, I think it looks pretty bleak. Um, If you look at many of the uh, mid to late stage assets, I think that they tend to be evolutionary as opposed to revolutionary. And for most intents and purposes, the medicines that you see today are probably the medicines that we'll be using 10 years from now to treat different psychiatric and neurologic conditions. So I I think really thinking about the way that the brain works and thinking about that landscape, it seemed to me like there was just a huge opportunity to tap into a treatment lever that we know has impact on the brain, which is cognitive experience but hasn't been really deployed in traditional disease treatment methods. And I think if you take a look at the way that the brain functions, the way that the brain grows, the way that the brain develops, everything really happens at the intersection of some sort of molecule and some sort of activity. And when I think about creating therapies around that interplay, um, that to me really simply would suggest that there is a huge opportunity to create software-based therapeutics to treat a whole number of these different uh, brain-related conditions. So I think the, uh, you know, the push started out very simply, which is to say, how in the world can we treat these different conditions? Um, I really sort of t- took a look back at um, a good deal of the scientific and, and the clinical training um, that I had amassed. Um, And to me, the answer was fairly obvious, which is that there was just this huge opportunity to create a new class of therapeutic products, which were software to directly treat human disease. Software as a therapeutic. I know to some of our listeners, that might be somewhat of a novel concept. And you've spoken previously about how the biotech and drug development industries have seen new waves of therapeutic modalities emerge from small molecules to biologics 
to cell and gene therapies in parallel with some of these digital therapeutics. Can you describe what exactly constitutes a prescription digital therapeutic and what kinds of diseases have these therapeutics currently shown promise for? When we say prescription digital therapeutics um, or their acronym PDTs, uh, what we really mean is software which is designed for and intended to treat human disease. Um, These are pieces of software that are not necessarily developed for traditional health and wellness conditions, but instead they're designed for treatment of frank disease uh, under the auspices of a prescribing physician. Um, These are assets that are developed via um, a a set of clinical trials that looks very much like one would expect to see in drug development. Um, So they're assets that are run through phase one, two, and three clinical trials. And really the goal is to demonstrate both safety and efficacy in the treatment of a particular disease condition. When the products are manufactured, if you will, they're manufactured under traditional quality standards, very much like what one would expect to see for a drug or a medium risk medical device. And then when the products are used in the real world, they are just that, they're products. Each one of the products by virtue of its FDA market authorization has its own discrete product code. And very much like a therapeutic medical device or a pharmaceutical, the physician writes a prescription and the payer is able to provide access to that product via reimbursement for the specific product code. And so I think as you alluded to, for us, we really see this as a whole new therapeutic modality on par with things like cell and or gene therapies. Um, We believe that we are just scratching the surface with the beginnings of what is a therapeutic modality that can treat literally hundreds of different disease conditions. And to that end, I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be in the space. Definitely. I think as one of the pioneers of the space, there is a lot of room to really decide the course of evolution as the field progresses. I'm curious, how specifically is PEAR aiming to capitalize on some of the advancements that have come about in computation to improve both diagnosis and treatment? Fundamentally, when we think about prescription digital therapeutics, I think that term may be a bit of a misnomer. All of these products, in addition to being therapeutic products, are also capable of delivering a digital diagnostic. And one of the largest hurdles um, to uh, really different uh, algorithmically driven um, diagnostics is that it's incredibly difficult to get patients to use them and to get clinicians to use them to actually collect reliable longitudinal data. I think that we see prescription digital therapeutics as unlocking this constraint because by providing value to the patient and the clinician, in this particular case, efficacy in the treatment of their disease, we see really rates of engagement with these products, which have not been seen previously. And those rates of engagement allow us to collect orders of magnitude more data than we would have been able to otherwise. I guess as we think about utilizing that data, we're trying to push in three different directions. And so the first is we are always trying to use data to impact the ways in which 
a prescription digital therapeutic functions in an individual patient. And what I mean by that is creating uh, feedback loops where a patient's uh, data, and that can be in the form of a patient self-report, it can be in the form of input from uh, a wearable sensor, and it can be in the form of input from something related to the smartphone, like, for example, uh, voice, that, the, that that data comes in and really impacts the tailoring of a specific digital therapeutic algorithm so that that patient's experience generates the most efficacy possible for a given patient. So I think that degree of inpatient tailoring is a huge opportunity for this space, and it's something that we push on across every single one of our products. I think the second big opportunity to leverage data collection is really to look at these different products across populations and to understand responders, non-responders, and even super-responders. And to that end, be able to modify and improve the entire product across the company's lifespan. And this is an incredibly interesting opportunity for, uh, for our company and for the space, because as you might imagine, PDTs evolve like pieces of software, as opposed to being a static treatment like a traditional drug. I think maybe the last place that we think about using the collection of real-world data in order to bolster our offerings is really in the demonstration of value to different stakeholders within the healthcare value chain. And what I mean by that is um, we are able to collect patient engagement. We're able to collect even things like utilization and claims. And we're able to do that for commercial patients who are using the product as opposed to for patients who are in a clinical study. And what that allows us to do is to go back to clinicians and to demonstrate that their patients are having clinical success in real time. And it allows us to go back to payers and demonstrate that our products are being used and that they are effective in the real world in a particular patient. So I, I think all of these opportunities together, as you might imagine, um, are a bit overwhelming. Um, but I think that we have a huge opportunity to collect and leverage data across every single prescription digital therapeutic asset in our portfolio. It does sound mind-blowing, especially the aspect that you mentioned where it's somewhat of a self-fulfilling cycle in the sense that you're able to demonstrate value through the therapeutic side. And as a result, individuals are more willing and, and able to provide data that will then inform maybe even broader scale hypotheses or actionable changes that you can make, providing value both to patients and then, of course, to providers and to uh, larger pharmas as well. Those are some of the key players in the ecosystem. And it sounds like you've been able to really tap into the needs and the value that each desires. I think I would, I would agree with, um, with all of those statements. And I think what makes this particularly exciting is that, again, um, this is really just the beginning of, of this whole new therapeutic modality. If you look at the products that we currently have in our platform, um, I think that you will only see those products continue to be more agile and continue to incorporate more real-world data as our user base grows and, frankly, as the products evolve. 
So let's talk about FDA approval for PDTs. Pear was the first player to achieve this milestone with the RESET and the RESET-O apps, which were approved for helping treat substance use disorder and opioid addiction, respectively. We've talked about how powerful PDTs can be, but there may have been some resistance or hesitation. What did it take to get there? Very simply, brokering change in healthcare is hard. Um, it takes time, it takes resources, and it takes clinical evidence. And if you if you really think about the different parts of our business, um, for us, it has been all about demonstrating the viability of prescription digital therapeutics to the end of making them mainstream medicine. If we think about the discrete questions that we've set out to answer, I think first it was, can software create drug-like efficacy? And can we do that in a clinically rigorous way? Um, that's a question that the company was able to address fairly early on uh, with a number of data sets associated with RESET and RESETO, as you mentioned, in substance use disorder and opiate use disorder, respectively. I think the next question um, uh, that, that we thought a lot about was, can you then translate that rigorously demonstrated efficacy data into a product label that is usable in the education of a clinician. And that was our FDA approval process. Um, there, um, this is a company that really uh, traffics in firsts, if you will. And um, this is probably one of the more proud achievements um, of the company's lifespan. Uh, the Reset product was the first product to ever receive uh, the first software-based product to ever receive disease treatment claims for any disease. Um, and so that was an incredibly interesting watershed moment uh, for us. And then uh, ResetO was the first prescription digital therapeutic to receive breakthrough designation. That product, uh, as you mentioned, received uh, market authorization for the treatment of opiate use disorder, um, respectively. We have a third product, and so uh, there are three products currently in the space. Our Somrisk product uh, was just recently market authorized, and that product is for the treatment of uh, chronic insomnia. I guess as we think about these conversations with the agency, um, I think that we've always um, been very conservative when it comes to clinical rigor. And when we think about really bringing the products to scale, um, we think about demonstrating clinical utility in existing clinical patient populations via existing clinical trial structures, via existing clinical endpoints. And um, it was our experience that when we were able to work with the agency and really help them to understand that the variable here or the, the bit of novelty was that um, these effects were being created by a piece of software, but everything else looked exactly like what they were used to reviewing and used to discussing with a therapeutic product. Um, we really saw a tremendous degree of collegiality, and I think that that's translated across uh, multiple of our assets in submission. Um, if we go back to really just thinking about what are the points of risk that we're trying to discharge in the company, I think after demonstrating that these products can get drug-like claims on label, um, the questions that follow are relatively straightforward. Um, will patients use the products in the real world? 
Will clinicians write scripts? And then ultimately, will third-party payers uh, provide reimbursement? And I think that we have some incredibly interesting traction there, specifically looking at real-world patient engagement and real-world clinician engagement. And as I mentioned previously, because of the ability for a prescription digital therapeutic to collect both patient-reported outcomes, but even link back to claims and utilization data, we've been able to demonstrate what are some incredibly exciting health economic benefits as well. Thinking to some of our listeners who might be interested in entering this space and entering the field, what skills do you think would be essential for someone looking to make their mark, perhaps drawing from your own background and the experiences that you think were the most helpful? It's important to remember that this is a new space, which is still in its infancy and still in its definition stages. And as I think about really what I've observed to be uh, success traits within the space, I think they're twofold. Um, I think number one, they are a comfort with novelty and or a comfort with problem solving. And number two, they're the ability to communicate novel topics with non-expert audiences. And maybe just to double click on each of those briefly, um, again, almost everything that we do is novel um, from interacting with the FDA through to educating prescribers, through to getting them to write scripts, through to educating payers. All of those are fundamentally novel problems, not the problems in and of itself, but doing them with regard to PDTs. And really what I've seen uh, to be most successful within my team is, is people who are comfortable really employing novel problem-solving frameworks, or maybe not novel frameworks, but frameworks to apply those novel problems as opposed to being able to lean on prior experience, because frankly, these are decidedly different uh, sets of constraints than what many people have seen in, uh, in their prior engagements or in their prior um, occupations. Um, so I think that comfort, comfort with novelty and problem solving is something which is incredibly important. That said, I think it's not good enough in this space to solve the problem. I think what is required is really the ability to develop followership around that solution. And what I've observed to be most important there our communication skills. So specifically people who are able to very openly and logically communicate the nature of their novel solutions and to do that across cross-disciplinary teams who have very different sets of backgrounds. And at PAIR, we sort of affectionately refer to this as showing your work. Um, we see that as an incredibly important part of what it takes to build a cross-functional team and what it takes to succeed on a cross-functional team. And I guess just by way of um, a, a somewhat entertaining aside, I think back in the, in the very, very early days of PEAR, um, there was a long-standing back and forth around the confusion of the definition of an API. And um, as you're probably aware, API means one very specific thing in the tech world. An API means one very specific thing in the pharma world. And I think that we encountered that some of the different people on the teams were using the exact same acronym, but to mean very different things. 
So I think to me, this is this is the perfect example of the notion that um, you know it's not good enough to just assume that the other party fully understands and agrees with what you're saying. Um, there's really a huge piece in the way in which the communication takes place and the rigor with which that communication takes place. That makes a lot of sense. It's something that I've been learning in the PhD process itself that you can do great science, but it's not going to be impactful if nobody else understands it. So thinking a little bit about the future of digital health, I know you mentioned it's still a novel area and is probably going to be rapidly evolving. What do you think the future looks like? Part of my question is motivated by the current pandemic, which has accelerated the shift to telehealth and telemedicine. Have you experienced differences at pair? I think if if one was to look at the traction for telemedicine, um, this country's healthcare system has probably made more advancements in the last 12 weeks versus the, the 12 years prior. Um, so I think that this has been in just an unbelievably rapid period of change when it comes to the adoption of tele. And I think that that's an incredibly good thing. I think that many forms of healthcare are probably better served in a remote setting. And certainly if coming into a centralized healthcare setting like a hospital, um, poses any degree of risk to the exposure for um, an infective like COVID-19, I think just the value proposition for remote care is unbelievably strong. I think what we have observed is that as care has very rapidly evolved to a remote setting, there's been an acknowledgement that telemedicine is quite good at remote yet synchronous care. And what I mean by that is that the care is remote, so the clinician and the patient are in different places, but it's also at the same time synchronous. So the care is only available when the clinician is available. And I think that that certainly is helpful in meeting people where they are, but it also provides a huge gap around all of the time that the clinician is not available. Um, So for patients who are struggling with conditions like depression, like chronic insomnia, like addiction, um, these are in many cases 24-7 conditions. And so we have really seen a tremendous acknowledgement for digital therapeutics uh, and specifically prescription digital therapeutics that they are capable of providing remote yet asynchronous care. Um, And what I believe we're seeing is really an evolution to a model where a patient receives periodic televisits but that the majority of the patient's interaction with the healthcare system takes place via a prescription digital therapeutic. And because of the clinical evidence associated with uh, the product's label, we, we believe very strongly that prescription digital therapeutics are the only safe and efficacious way to be able to deliver remote and asynchronous care. And so um, I, I think it's anyone's guess as to how many of these COVID-related changes persist in a post-COVID world. And I think if, if you have insights there, uh, I'd be more than happy to discuss them after the podcast. Um, but I do think that the, the transition that we've made in the last 10 to 12 weeks is one that will be longstanding. And I think that this is a tremendous thing uh, for patients. 
It's fascinating to see how such a shift can happen so rapidly, but definitely encouraging. Would love to hear your reflection. When you look back on your career, what threads have you consistently pulled and which of these paradigms do you plan to carry forward with you? I'm a, I'm a firm believer that most of the opportunities for impact are intersectional. And what I mean by that is I think that we've had for long periods of time incredibly smart people thinking incredibly deeply about any given discipline. And if I think about my, my life as a scientist, um, you know, there were incredibly talented people who thought for the entirety of their careers about very specific scientific questions. Um, and I think that there's an incredible amount of merit in that. Um, but for me personally, um, if one thinks about really optimizing for impact, it seemed more interesting for me to be able to take that bit of information together with uh, some of the information from clinical medicine, together with some of the problem solving um, from uh, my time as a McKinsey consultant, together with the investor world, and really try to take the lessons from each of those different endeavors and apply them to something that was entirely new, um, which sat at the intersection of some of these different disciplines. And so uh, I guess my hope is that I'll have the opportunity to really be able to create um, a tremendous amount of impact via prescription digital therapeutics and via our work at PAIR. But my hope is also that in any subsequent chapters, I'll be able to continue to push really outside of my own comfort zone and outside of the world's comfort zone into some of these intersectional opportunities, which are frankly just unbelievably ripe for the development of companies, the development of technologies, um, and, and ultimately uh, patient and societal impact. Corey, it's been wonderful having you here with me today. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on prescription digital therapeutics on your own journey with PEAR, and I wish you the best of luck. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of The Data Pulse. If any of the terms used in today's conversation were foreign to you, feel free to check out the podcast glossary where I've included definitions and links to resources that my guests have shared. Be sure to tune in next week to once again get a sneak peek into the pulse of data-driven biomedicine.